Welcome to the Creek Default Podcast, where we discuss the latest news, laws, and trends affecting your industry. Welcome to, or hopefully back to, the Creek Devault Podcast. My name is George Lepinyotist, and I'll be your host. Today, we are joined by my partner and good friend, Bob Grising. Bob, thank you for being here today. Glad to be here, George. Always nice to visit with you. <laughs> and uh, we don't normally record our visits, but hey, we're going to do it today. <laughs> and we're going to talk about some fun things that I think are relevant to your practice area and my practice area. Uh, you are a senior uh, partner in our uh, business acquisitions and securities group. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that means? Sure. Um, this is a group of lawyers that focus on servicing people that are really involved in the uh, transaction business area, as well as the B part of it of general business. We often will serve as what might be considered outside general counsel services. Uh, we can receive a call and triage it to handle most any issue that comes up and and uh, certainly a lot of that is in the business area, contracts, distribution issues, and so on. The A part is what uh, what I focus on, which is the acquisitions, and then the S is security, so people that are looking for capital formation. But, you know, the acquisition part is, I think, what we're going to talk about today, and, and that's part of what I focus on. Yeah, yeah, the A is, in fact, what we are talking about. But it is interesting to note that a lot of times our relationships with our clients, if we are, in fact, representing the uh, the seller, the, the, the target entity, can be for the lifespan of that entity, or a large part of it anyways, where we are offering counsel during... Uh, operations through normal course of business all the way through the business potentially being acquired by a next generation owner or ownership group. As we think about that concept, it takes two parties really to dance in that world. It takes a buyer and a seller, right? At least two. That's right. Yeah, that's the basics of it. Um, Today's topic is reps and warranties insurance. There are lots of parts to these deals, but this part intrigues me personally because I feel it has changed the deal landscape. Can you give us a brief history of reps and warranties insurance and how long it's really been available in these types of transactions? Sure, George. It is a relatively new entrant, but it's getting some maturity to it. In fact, that's a benefit to the transaction uh, sector overall. Uh, At one point, it was for the big guys, um, and uh, because of uh, the need for the insurance companies to cut their teeth to understand the market, they're much better at that, and there are more competitors. There are more people offering the product. And so it's great capitalism at its work, you know, working as it should. Uh, it's driving down uh, pricing and costs as well as enhancing uh, the range of value from the product. But the idea is uh, trying to address a big tension point between buyers and sellers, which is, okay, I'm selling my company and I want to keep 100% of what I get. And the buyer is saying, well, I'll give you 100% of what it's worth and and you assess risks along the way. and uh, And so... Reps and warranties are where those risks are allocated between buyers and sellers. And the insurance concept comes in to insure against a loss arising out of some problem with the reps and warranties. And that's an interesting way of segmenting it because my I was really wanted to focus here at the beginning. These policies can either be purchased or procured by the buyer or the seller, correct? Correct. Uh, you know, Substantially, all of them are what are considered to be buy side. That the buyer is the one that is really trying to manage its risk profile on the transaction. 
but sellers have a motivation to help manage that risk as well. And so while a buyer may not want to do it for some reason, a seller may say, hey, I want to go out and do it. And in fact, I've tried to place a couple of sell-side policies uh, because of the particular uniqueness of the situation. Um, so let's say you might have a, a family foundation that's the owner of a business, and you just want to make sure that you have no ongoing risk. And so um, the sell-side insurance RWI policy can help you manage that on a going forward basis. All right. And like any other insurance policy that we have had that our listeners are comfortable with, medical insurance policies, automobile insurance policies, business policies, general liability, this policy has exclusions. It is not a universal coverage. You're not, you don't get this policy and the buyer, the seller walks away risk-free. There are some basics that the seller will retain as far as that risk profile, aren't there? Correct. Uh, and you're right to pattern this after uh, the traditional insurance policy. It is an insurance policy and the underwriter, the RWI carrier, will uh, say, I, I will insure this transaction under these circumstances. One of them is there's a premium that's going to get paid. And that has been an impediment. And one of the things that has helped move this to a, a portion of call it the lower middle market portion of a transaction uh, arena, is that the cost of these is low enough now that you can afford it, quote unquote, at a $25, $30 million level. At one point, it was high enough that that would be disproportionate. And so usually you weren't seeing them until you were in the 50 to $75 million range when this first came out. Um, and so there's that part of it, who's going to pay the premium, usually the buyer, or if it's a sell side, usually the seller, but that's a negotiated uh, point. The other one is, like your deductible, there's a retention amount, and so who's going to pay for that? And um, and that's a relatively low part of it, but there's still uh, a retention. And uh, currently, you're seeing that maybe at about a half a percent of the overall uh, transaction value. And that's oftentimes divided up between the buyer and the seller because they both benefit from this. But that's also a negotiated point. We've seen some where the buyer in a competitive bidding situation may agree to pay all of it, trying to enhance the net takeaway by the seller. And then uh, then the third one is one you mentioned, you know, what is actually covered and what is not covered. And that's also subject to negotiation, subject to an underwriting process as well, where there's a a due diligence process that now the insurer uh, wants to make sure occurs or does it itself. Because you talked about two parties, the buyer and the seller. When you rep introduce RWI, you are bringing a third party with an economic interest in the transaction, the insurance carrier, and that's they want to manage their risk. Yeah, and I think I, we had we'd mentioned that before we went on the air here, that they do become a significant part of the transaction. In a recent transaction where we were representing the seller of a business, uh, the reps and warranties insurance company not only did its own due diligence through underwriting, but also hired outside counsel to review the deal and to do its own, uh, to provide its own recommendations. Let's talk a little bit about that. That changes the landscape of the deal when you have this third party who has its own interest, right? I mean, the insurance company really is only about reducing the potential risk or the potential payout on the policy. Correct. Um, because they ha there have been claims and there have been there's litigation over a failed claim or, you know, a, an insured, a buyer, submits a claim when there's a loss and can't go against the seller because RWI has replaced that. And so they're going to want to recover that. They file a claim and the insurance company says, no, 
you know, so yeah. there are, so that's one of the reasons why uh, the insurance companies come in and, uh, as part of that process. They want to be able to say no legitimately. They will pay legitimate claims, and, and there it is an insurance product, and, and part of the decision is who your carrier is going to be and who's going to issue the policy. And there are developing good reputations, not so good reputations with this. But the diligence part of this, you said, is changes the landscape. I would say it rearranges the landscape. Uh, diligence has always been part of this, and the buyers have always done diligence. And in some ways, sellers should do their own diligence because they want to make sure that they get things out on the table. Um, what we see with RWI, though, is since there's another pocket to pick, uh, there is a shifting of that responsibility. Um, should the buyers and the insurance companies be doing the same diligence? I, I'd argue probably yes. Right. But to the extent that an insurance company that is now being asked to take on the risk of, of failed representations feels like the diligence was not sufficient or they didn't look in the right areas or they need to dig a little deeper, the insurance companies will require that or else they'll exclude that. That's yeah. like any other insurance policy. There are exclusions. There are things that will not be covered. And if an insurance company is uncomfortable that the risk has not been carefully identified and believed to not exist, they're not going to yeah. insure that. Yeah, and I will I will affectionately call them pre-existing conditions, right? I think that the reps and warranties, in my experience, the, the carrier's looking for pre-existing conditions that could equal risk, whereby the rep and warranty may or may not be um, viable or may create risk for the policy, in which case it will exclude those. From a seller's perspective, I mean, from a buyer's perspective, it's obvious that if the insurance company is going to provide coverage, uh, that should be an area of concern for the buyer, correct? I mean, the insurance the insurance investigation revealed something that, that created the exception. Correct. And I have not seen that uh, play out in a failed deal where right. because an insurance company refuses to cover a particular risk, the buyer says, oh, I'm out of here. Right. But it does, it will be a wake-up call and say, what, what is it that I have missed? Um, and sometimes the buyer will say, well, I didn't miss it, or else I'll come back and address that with the seller. Reps and warranties insurance is often a nearly full and complete replacement for the indemnity structure in right. a transaction. There's usually a little bit left because you're dealing with that retention amount. I want to unpack that statement for our uh, maybe more casual listeners. It is a complete replacement of the indemnity structure. So essentially, when the seller, when the transaction is completed, if there was ever a breach of the reps and warranties contained within the purchase documents, the buyer would first look to uh, the insurance company, or at least look to the insurance company and the seller, depending on which rep or warranty was was breached. Correct. If you're taking a look at sort of pockets of risk, um, and you're saying, well, whose pocket does this risk belong to? You're trying to push as much of that to the insurance company's pockets as possible. There is the retention, so there's usually an indemnity relationship to address what that retention is and when it can be accessed. And so that indemnity component continues with these transactions. But mo if you did not have that, you'd have a much bigger indemnity pool. Right. You know. 10, 15% would not be unusual in um, middle market transactions. Yeah. 
with the retention indemnity, you're moving that down to half a percent. So, you, so the seller's getting a lot more cash at closing, except there are some things that we know RWI does not cover. And so the buyer will still have recourse against the seller for those things, fraud claims or what are sometimes carved out, um, you know, a particular risk because it, going back to what is covered, the insurance company will not cover those things that are in your disclosure schedules, for example. Right. Because those are known risks, and it's like, oh, no, you guys know about it. You work that out in the pricing sure. give and take. And so one of the ways buyers do that, say, well, we have this litigation risk. We're going to have a special indemnity for that piece of litigation or this piece of unknown and environmental risk, for example, a product liability risk. Those are some things that might be carved out. So yeah. the indemnity structure does not go completely away, but the nuts and bolts, the key part of it, really does go away, and that's why sellers are interested in this. Oh, for sure. I, I think it's a benefit probably to both parties, right? There's also the unknown of what does a seller do post-sale, and does a buyer really out there trying to chase down a seller who potentially uh, may or may not be as responsible as an insurance company? And, you know, we mentioned that this this market is growing. I think I've done a few deals with AIG. These are large companies that are providing, even in small or mid-cap size transactions, they are interested in that market. And so you can get a pretty reputable insurance company to, to provide these policies. Correct. And that's one of the big changes here that I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago was probably when I heard my first presentation on, on RWI. I say, well, that's really an interesting project. And I would talk with clients. They said, well, why should I pay someone 10% of the deal when I know, you know, I'm a better assessor of the risk of the deal than, sure. than they are. Yeah. And so it was, you saw a lot of just people saying it just doesn't work for me. But with premiums going down and with the more sophistication in the market and more competition, it has really worked. And we're seeing a significant number. Um, another play in this is the private equity group really likes this. Right. And they are driving on a lot of transactions, but they're also a thought leader. And if it's good for them, then it must be good for me. So you're seeing uh, RWI in non private equity transactions as well. Okay. And driving that down, as I said, you you know, you could still be pretty cost effective. People are saying in the twenty to twenty five million dollar range. And we did one that was in the ten to fifteen million dollar range because of the special circumstances that the seller really wanted to have it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, with those hurdles being overcome by the natural progression of the product what are the current downfalls of an RWI policy? We've got the, the first is you now have a third party doing due diligence and that can sometimes create tension in the deal. Are there anything else that are that you should be aware of or keep your eye on that these policies can create issues or, or, or problems? Yeah, the decision overall is how, you know, how is this going to play out? Is it going to impact the timing of the deal? And generally, again, the insurance companies are very used to these transactions, and so you don't see them dragging this out, but it can. Um, they usually are very much a part of and almost uh, do not impact your deal timeline. You get them involved early enough and, and so on. But because of their own due diligence, sometimes they'll raise things, and, and so you do have new issues to discuss, and there is some possibility of it pushing the timing on that. But the overall benefits to the sellers are more dollars at closing is a big part of it. Uh, limitation of risk post-closing, 
and so on. From the buyers, there's also certainty of collection. If there is a loss, you know, chasing a bunch of shareholders who have dissolved the company that just sold the assets and they've gone to hither and yon, um, you know, there's a recovery issue associated with that. Um, And so there are benefits, uh, as you said earlier, really to both sides. Um, But the biggest one is, uh, is the higher net at closing for the sellers and the certainty of recovery and risk management at the buy side. (laughs) And when you think about those two statements, higher net for seller, less risk for buyer, you've addressed two very, very key parts of the deal. So, Yeah, and also in the current situation, I mean, there's a very hot um, M&A market right now. There was last year, year before, even with COVID at that point, it was still pretty active. Um, And it looks like it's going to continue to be that way. And sellers, good sellers, will have multiple buyers. And so one of the other benefits to a buyer is a better positioning as an attractive alternative to the seller. So if I'm selling and I have somebody that's going to force me to do a traditional indemnity and put 10 or 15% aside for who knows how long and all that versus someone who give me 95% or actually more like 98, 99% at closing, um, well, that's going to be a more attractive buyer to me. And so we've seen buyers use this where there is an auction or a bidding process or multiple competitors for the deal uh, that they use RWI as a differentiator. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Well, thank you. Thank you for the quick primer. Um, For those of our listeners that want to learn more about the general acquisition topic, about Bob's practice, about my practice, please feel free to check out our website at kriegdevault.com. Business Acquisitions and Securities is our practice group, and uh, we have a lot of resources on our website uh, and also contact information for both of us. Uh, Thank you, Bob. You're very welcome. Always good to join and to share some thoughts about uh, this favorite topic of mine, M&A. M&A is, is one of my favorite topics, and I think it goes, you know, a lot of people hear about it. You hear, oh, M&A or mergers and acquisitions. It's been lingo for a long time, but it really is an exciting world. So uh, thank you again. Have a great day, and thanks for tuning in.